This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, we had Canadian author Humble the Poet here on the show, and we talked about the power of forgiving in the times of COVID. And Matt shared about not writing music at all this year. Matt, now how many songs would you normally write? I don't know, like in a month or a summer or some season? About six to ten. And we got Are You Okay with Recycled Christmas Songs? You know the songs you hear year after year after year. Why can't we get good new Christmas songs anymore? All of this and more coming up on the Shift Daily Podcast. And it's available for you on all of your favorite podcast platforms, whether that's Stitcher or Apple or Spotify or CuriousCast.ca. I wanted to have some conversation and share this with you with a guy I haven't spoken to in a little while. Now, I did have this conversation Sunday afternoon, just so you know. I recorded this and uh, chatted in the daytime with a Canadian creative named Humble the Poet. I've had Humble on before. Uh, he's a fantastic uh, man. He's written a few books. He creates music. He creates poetry. And he's learned an awful lot. But the biggest thing of where this conversation with Humble uh, goes is he's always got some good tips really down-to-earth, simple tips, too. But he's got some good tips on what it's like. Um, we'll talk about this coming up, but he's working his gig in L.A. and came home and moved into his parents' basement and then moved out again, knowing he's going to be back in Canada for a little while and making the best of all of it. So what does um, what does that mean? This is my conversation with Humble the Poet. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Humble being a poet, a spoken word guy, overall creative, I would say, would be the uh, probably the place to put you. Professional weirdo, is that what it is? Well, you were a teacher by trade beforehand, weren't you? And then got into uh, your own creative writing and released a few books, which are fantastic, by the way. Let's start the conversation there, Humble, um, because I'm assuming now that you have some time, uh, writing has been a part of the last eight months or so. So why don't you tell everybody who doesn't know about your other couple books, uh, what they are and, and where you're at today. Yeah. So I, in 2013, I self-published a book by the name of Unlearn and it was a book to myself kind of, uh, you know, exploring the things, the ideas I had to let go to be able to move on, uh, with, with my life. Uh, the challenges I faced. I was working as a teacher and I left it to pursue a full-time job, uh, a full-time career in music, uh, thinking that I got discovered. And, you know, the romantics ideas faded very quickly and I found myself uh, heartbroken and broke and uh, lost. And uh, I wrote my way out of that hole. Um, and I, I wrote and I shared. And then it was my community that told me that I should write a book. And then I self-published the book in 2013. And then in 20. Uh, and sold it independently for years. And then in 2017, it got picked up in Canada by Indigo Books, which uh, for the uh, non-Canadian readers, uh, listeners, sorry, uh, is the biggest bookstore in the country. Um, and then after that, it did very well in their bookstores. And uh, that helped me secure a publishing deal with HarperCollins. And um, I released my second book last year at the end of 2019 called Things No One Else Can Teach Us. Um, and that was a book about all the lessons in life that nobody else could teach us and encouraging through my own stories of how people can find, create and discover a silver lining in any situation that ever uh, encounters them in life. Clarity is a beautiful place to be. 
um, between Unlearn and um, and the second book, and, you know, here you are as a creative with a whole lot of free time. Uh, you were in L.A., COVID hits, you come home, your fam is in, in and around Toronto, and uh, here you are back again, uh, back in Canada, settling in. So uh, how, how are you doing, man? I, I, it's a question that I suggest here on the show that we should ask more often. You know, how are you doing with eight months of back with the family, first of all, which is awesome, but still somewhat irritating <laughs> at times, um, and, and not able to be in palm trees surrounded by some of your friends? Um, I'm great. You know what? The when I when I got my visa to move to the states, the vision was to to go there for about three years. Uh, I was never looking at Los Angeles as being a home. I looked at it more as I'm going away for school. You know, there's a lot to learn. Uh, Hollywood, Los Angeles, California. That's where you can learn how to mix your creativity and the commerce, and and find all the various options of how to make a living uh, with your ideas. Um, and that's why I was there. I was I was there on and off. Uh, part-time for the past five years and this move was kind of a commitment to, to kind of going all in with the new relationships I had built uh, signing to an agency over there and it was just about making myself available and understanding that you know stuff does happen when you just when you when you meet with the right person or you're at the right place that stuff happens so increase those op- increase those uh, opportunities to happen by being there and then legitimately three days before uh I was going to begin apartment hunting. Uh, all the, you know, the, the news dropped. All the lockdowns began. Uh, and then I came home and I went to my parents' house, went straight into the basement, separate entrance. Both my parents are over 70. Uh, so I was really worried about that. Um, and I spent two months living out of my parents' basement, uh, having food delivered to me at the, at the, at the adjoining door. Nice. And... Um, I've always worked from home. My office has always been my laptop. So from a from a lockdown perspective um i was fortunate not to be dramatically impacted if anything the first month was really good because nobody was emailing me and requesting anything of me so i got to watch television guilt-free for a while and uh (laughs) what did you watch what was the uh, guilty pleasure show that you got stuck on humble um i rewatched community i love that show it was on netflix i rewatched it um um Westworld, um, uh, high maintenance. I, I love HBO shows. So, uh, I, I generally either rewatch a show I love. Uh, it's really difficult for me to, to start a new show, especially like, you know, I didn't watch the Tiger Kings or any of the trending topic shows, but it's pretty uh, good though. Gotta tell you. I, I've, I've heard, I've heard, it's, I've heard. And I think I, I rewatched BoJack. I, I just picked a lot of shows that I already loved that, that I just really wanted to kind of dig deeper into. And um, the second month got a little bit tricky. You know, I was, you know, seven foot ceilings and no windows. I found myself falling asleep at 7 a.m. every day and sleeping all day. Um, Me and my friends had developed a Zoom poker league. So we would all just play, you know, real poker, real money on Zoom. Wow. And, uh, you know, online poker. And that was great. That was really good. Um, and then once I think it became clear that this wasn't going away anytime soon, I went and uh, found myself a place uh, in the city to, to live. And um, as, as you can see, though, I'm, I'm, I'm staying in a really big warehouse with mm-hmm. high ceilings and a lot of windows, which right. is the exact opposite of my natural light. Yes. So uh, it's been really good from that context. And I, and I recognize very early that, you know, the world is on pause. This is free time. 
to, to create. Um, and 2020 was already going to be one of my creation years. You know, I had just released, uh, you know, my, my first book on Learn got its re-release in the States at the beginning of 2019. My second book got released in October. So I was pretty much on tour traveling the entire time. My 2020 New Year's resolution was no traveling. And I broke that in January and February with about 15, 20 flights. Wow. So the, the lockdown was a, you know, for me at least, it helped me keep that no traveling. And, and the, the reason I wanted to have no traveling was as much as I love traveling, the, the other side of that coin is a lack of consistency, a lack of routine, uh, a negative impact on what I ate, a negative impact on my sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, also a negative impact on my productivity because I would just be in different places and I loved it and it was stimulating and it was adventurous and it was fun and I had no shortage of places to go and friends to be around and excuses to be places. Um, so being being set in one place allowed me to kind of honor other promises I made to myself, which was, you know, write every day, which I've been doing, working on my new book, uh, focusing on my fitness, focusing on eating healthier um, and focusing on a lot of self-discovery. So I've been doing a lot of that. Well, isn't it interesting to, to think that the guy who writes the book about unlearn, right, and adds new structures into your life to sort of, you know, create new experience and learn new things and replace old memories and, and all of those pieces of the unlearn book, um, still learning a few, late, well, six years later, uh, that, hey, by the way, I'm going to put a little structure back in my life here and, and get back to my center. Like, it's an incredible perspective to hear the guy who writes the book say that I'm still learning and I'm still going through the, the process of the new structures and, and, and the development. And I think that's a great example for everybody to, to see that there is no finish line, right? There is no top to that mountain that you get to and you're like, well, okay, well, I've figured life out now. I've got clarity and um, where's the golf course? I mean, it doesn't happen like that. Yeah, there's no happily ever after. There's no, uh, there's no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. There's just the rainbow. And mm-hmm. that is the pot of gold. You have to enjoy the rainbow for what it's worth. And I've, I've also definitely caught myself, you know, whether it's, you know, a, a, a member of my community sends me a quote from the book that I needed to read. And it's like, okay, you know, the, these, these lessons, you know, they need to be reapplied, you know, regularly. And um, also just recognizing, you know, different levels, different devils. And I, you know, very early on, you know, I was working a day job and, I felt like I was trapped. I felt like I didn't have control over my day or my destiny. Um, and as you slowly start to unshackle yourself from expectations and, and structures and pressures of the outside world, you start to realize how many of these uh, shackles and fences and, and walls you built yourself. And, and then you start to realize how many mental prisons that you're trapped in. So I've been going through that journey and in realizing that, you know, this absolute rejection of structure is, is, is too extreme as well. You know, we mm-hmm. can't go from one extreme to the other. Um, I can't be in a situation where I have no movement and freedom, but I can also not be in a situation where I'm living in complete chaos. And I can no structure and I have no plans in my day and no direction because that's just as, as heavy on your mental health. And um, so now I'm, I'm, I'm trying to swing the pendulum back and find something uh, more so in the middle. And uh, it's been really interesting because, you know, as certain problems, whether they were financial, uh, whether they were personal, as they get addressed, you know, there is, as I said, as you said, there's no golf course at the end of this tunnel. There's just recognizing there's other issues, other problems. And then yeah. sometimes you're like, oh, I, I, I remember the simplicity where, when all I was focusing on was getting myself out of debt. 
or the simplicity of having my back against the wall and not allowing myself to have a personal life because I was trying to survive financially or I was trying to get my head above water uh, with my mental health. And once those things become addressed, now, you know, you have to go deeper and you have to find that next challenge, that next problem. And uh, it's been a really interesting, it's been a really interesting time. And as I said, and I think the big lesson I took from this year um, was I was a little bit prepared for kind of the world ending a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. a major catastrophe, I think, uh, from a, from a fine, you know, I, in 2008, 2009, I, I, I suffered a lot in the, in the crash. Um, that's when I had my big transition. I left my job in 2010, uh, and I left it, uh, in financial ruins. Um, and that taught me, you know, basics, have a savings account, have some very, very, very boring money, in in a savings account it is good but uh, it's boring it's right it's boring but it's there you know it's there when the stock market crashes it's there when you know the finance you know what have you and i was also kind of prepping um for the idea that there would have been a correction in the economy and all this type of stuff so i was was very i had been practicing my swing for an inevitable curveball i didn't expect it to be a pandemic but i had been practicing it um so like everybody else, you know, I did lose certain opportunities. I did lose certain situations. Um, but no, in, in no way, shape or form am I in a position to complain in comparison to how, you know, what my other friends have gone through. You know, my other friends mm-hmm. have been through layoffs, uh, health issues or what have you. Um, but the, the little voice in my head was like, look, you you were able to handle this uncomfortable sudden shift in life because you were prepared for it. Um now go find now go voluntarily dive into something uncomfortable you know what have you been avoiding in your life what what, what's the next curveball that you need to be facing right now um instead of waiting for things to find you you should be actively searching them out and that's really been the journey uh for the last eight months for me which is kind of creating a list of things that i'm afraid of and and turning that into my to-do list well you did say that you were uh, taking care of your body a little bit better you were doing some uh, more study so what things have you created out of it? I mean, uh, for me, for example, one of the things I've really created out of this uh, whole pandemic was, you know, stepping into this show, full-time employed for the first time in five years. I mean, I haven't been self, I've been self-employed for so long that the um, stepping into a job again has been uh, a mix of all things, right? Like I haven't had, I haven't had a boss in five years. I haven't had to wait for someone else in the company to do things that need to get done, right? It was just always just go, you know, knock it out, get it done. And so I've been able to come through that with the comfort and uh, I think the gratitude of having a team around again that will do those things, even though it might take longer. So what have you come through all this? Like you spoke of your fitness. Um, what do you, what do you have now that you didn't have before? Um, I have a clear recognition that I require structure and I require accountability. Um, the days of me wanting to be a free bird are no longer there. I think now I want to be a kite hmm. with a string and I, and I want to have, you know, I'm, I'm still self-employed. I'm still my own boss, but I find myself paying people to tell me what to do. Yeah. You know, so I'm hiring a trainer and, you know, I'm paying him, but the moment he's in the room, he's the boss. And if he says 10 more push-ups, I'm doing 10 more push-ups. If he says jump, I'm jumping. Right. If he says higher, I have to jump higher. And I realize that that's the next level of this. It's, you know, it's not, I'm not doing it because I'm oppressed and being forced to do it. I'm doing it voluntarily 
Um, so now, you know, I'm in the, I'm in the market for a writing coach, you know, because everybody could become a better writer. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking into a yoga instructor. I'm looking into, I'm looking into recognizing that I can't simply depend on my discipline or my motivation to get the things that matter to me done. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to have people accountable. I have two assistants and one assistant, one of her jobs is to, you know, send me my to-do list every morning and then, you know, poke at me regularly to make sure it's getting done. And she has access to see how quickly I can tick off things on the to-do list. Um, so refining that, I think, has been really important for me. Um, and also recognizing how much meaning comes in life from finding your boulders and taking responsibilities. And I, I think... Uh, I was in, in my previous life. I was probably overwhelmed with too much on my plate, and then I, I got rid of everything. And now, um, you know, my 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 quote unquote struggling artist years, you know, were extremely overwhelming, um, and I was constantly in survival mode. And then eventually, I hit this point where things got better, and just being the nature of a writer, it's, it's one of the remaining slow jobs in the in the in the in the universe where it's like okay it's okay you know you i don't have to release a piece of content every three days like Uh a youtuber or or a podcaster i just you know i can release a book once every two three years and that's considered more than acceptable um and as a writer it's also going for a walk for three hours counts as being a writer like you have to live life to have something to write about and you have to think deeply and absorb stuff and do that work and um recognizing that and seeing the value in that and understanding that this is what my purpose is now. And I have to do everything possible to optimize that in terms of my health, uh, in terms of my mindset, in terms of my relationships, uh, in terms of how I spend my time, who I spend my time around, um, and celebrating progress over perfection. You know, there is no perfect. Um, I will always be able to get, I will always find room for improvement. And that, that doesn't mean I'm unsatisfied. That just means I have devoted myself to progress. I'm on a journey. And as long as I'm doing better today than I was yesterday, uh, that's good. And I'll never be where I want to be because my credits roll when I'm dead. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that'll be the end of that. So it's, it's been quite a journey. Um, and I feel like there, the isolation is, you know, sometimes that, that and you, you, you'll know this too, being your own boss. When you are your own boss, you have the worst boss you've ever had. Oh, it's you the know? worst. What a jerk that guy is. Yeah, because he, he can say things to you that nobody would ever say to you. Yeah. And well, he, and he knows when I'm watching TV when I shouldn't be, right? He knows when I'm, you know, when I when I have extra time and I'm not taking it to get that, that work done. I mean, it's, it's like he follows you around everywhere you go. <laughs> he follows you around, but he also speaks to you in a manner that is not even effective. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you know, get your ass off off the couch and get back to work. You wouldn't say that to an employee. Never. Nor would you allow somebody else, even a person in, in, in a position of authority, to speak to you like that. Mm-hmm. But when we're our own boss, we do that. And I learned very quickly that that, A, was not good for my mental health, but B, it was also just, it didn't lead to productivity. You know, it doesn't make me work any harder when I'm hard on myself. And practicing speaking to myself kindly being like all right cool we had a plan today we didn't get through it we're going to do better tomorrow all right we're, we're going to cancel those social plans to make this happen um i think that was a really big one but also having conversations with people uh, one one of the big realizations i've had now is you need to have your friends names in your calendar 
and you need to schedule out these FaceTimes. You need to talk with them because they can help you see things about yourself that you haven't seen. They can also kind of bring you back to life. Everybody is in, everybody is more isolated than they should be. Uh-huh. Um, and even though it's a necessary evil right now to get through, you know, what we're going through, um, it's taking a toll. And it's, you know, mental health. The priority of mental health is still extremely young, you know. Ten years ago, if you said, I need a mental health day, you know, people would have, would have just looked at you funny. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, now it's getting a lot better, but all of us have to recognize that. And it's uh, it's something that I don't think is being discussed enough, which is, you know, we're making a lot of choices right now to reduce, you know, hospitalizations and keep people healthy and keep people alive. But we have to also recognize what is the impact on people's mental health, on their financial health, on their spiritual health. And I am not a person with the answers, so I'm not going to criticize the current solutions and approaches. Um, but I just want to introduce that a little bit more to the conversation. And for me, I realize it's like you got to connect with people. You have to be mindful of that. Um, and for me, somebody who wants to visit his parents every so often, I have to be mindful of who I'm around and then how much time I take off in between before I go see my parents to ensure right. that. I'm not bringing anything into that house. You find that you, um, when you do connect with those friends, that you get to this place where you start just sharing everything, and then when you're done, you go, I had no idea that I had so much to say. Yes. there's. The, I definitely had. I have that, and I also have these preconceived narratives in my head about what my friends are thinking or what they think about me. And um, I have a, I have a friend who you know I spent a lot of time with in Los Angeles. They're just the epitome of productivity. They are just wired differently. Yeah. They work, you know. I work really hard, and I still only work as half as hard as them. And I always had it. And at at one point, I was living with them, and they wanted they they told me that I could live rent free as long as I was working. As long as I was working every day, I wasn't there to party. I wasn't there to hang out. As long as I had something to show for what I was doing. They weren't going to take any rent from me because they wanted me to develop myself and not stress out about the finances at that point. Um, and that I, that was a real big driver in how hard I worked. And I worked extremely hard. And it got to a point where I was always like, okay, I have to be working, have to be working, have to be working. And then having a FaceTime conversation with them a few weeks back and telling them all the things, all the pressure I'm putting on myself. And they said, listen, in 2020, the only thing on your to-do list is don't die. Yeah. Every everything else is a bonus. Stop being hard on yourself. And to hear that from them, of all people, knowing that they're 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 a productivity freak, and they're usually, you know, they 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 we we generally talk about productivity and how how hard people are working. And you know, most people are mutual friends that may be complaining about their lack of traction and how we we associate it with their lack of effort. But you know, I think it's also recognizing that I'm in, I'm I'm in a different field. I'm a writer. And it's slower and it works. And a thousand words a day for me is a lot. And, you know, mm-hmm. that may require, you know, four days of reflection and deep thought. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a shift and it's, it, it goes back to the concept of unlearning. You know, you we were told what it means to be successful. We were told what it means to be productive or we hold on to certain strategies and mechanisms and outlooks that served us once in the past, you know, maybe what the struggling artist in me needed at that point is no longer going to serve me as the guy I am today. Now it may serve as an anchor and hold me down and slow mm-hmm. me down. And now I need to let that go. And I need to now, you know, abandon concepts of imposter syndrome. You know, I'm, 
I am an author with a ma- with a major publisher. I am a writer. You know, mm-hmm. I don't have to justify my behaviors as a writer. I got to do what writers do. And I, I not only take care of myself, I'm in a position to take care of people that I care about. And I need to do whatever is necessary to optimize that. And if that's, you know, sitting on a beanbag chair and, and, and watching silly shows on Netflix for the whole day, then that's what it is. If it's, you know, boxing, that's what it is. If it's going for a long walk or if it's reading a book and uh, recognizing that that's what it can be instead of spending all my time going through my emails and doing administrative stuff and finding people who can do that just as well or if not better than me. Well, action and inaction are one and the same and not to be forgotten. So um, they uh, taking action and not taking action are both taking action. So you can certainly hear how... Uh, the uh, the not taking action certainly does do that too. Humble, I love our conversations. Uh, it's absolutely fantastic. I think it's a great reminder for me anyway. What you've given me is I was given a piece of advice a bunch of years ago, and it was um, it was about radio shows, and it was look, I don't care what it takes to get you here. You go do whatever you do to be you, and then when you're your best you, you come here and you crush it, and. Um, and that's a good reminder for everybody, from the truck drivers to the delivery people, uh, to the doctors and the nurses, to everybody um, who's listening, to just uh, do you and uh, bring it when it's time. Don't be so hard on yourself. Yeah, just, just bring it. You know, and and recognize those voices of you being so hard on yourself are probably not yours. And the yeah. people who who put those voices in your head, they just didn't have better tools to get you motivated. And don't hold it against them either. It's a beautiful thing. HumbleThePoet.com. You can check out his books. They're both there online and all the other things that he gets up to. To um, It's great to see your face, man. It's been too long. I don't want to wait so long next time. What do you say? Yes, any anytime. Hit me up. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm writing. And I mean, definitely want to come on when the book's done. Um, you know, it's a, I'm writing about love. And my goal is to write the, the simplest book ever written about love. Wonderful. And, uh, it's, a, it's one of my it's favorite a, topics. It's, yes, and it, it's been a journey. It's been a, a very disruptive journey in my life, and uh, um, once it's, I, I, I can envision, I can envision what it's going to look like once it's done. But uh, I still got, I got a long way to go. I got a couple of more months before my first draft is done, and then there's going to be a lot of just sitting in a park with printed up chapters and a big pen and a big red marker, and just going through it over and over, and uh, and, and and shaving away everything that's unessential from it. So whatever is left will, you know. No, it, it's in the same vein as unlearned. It's, I, I'm writing this to myself, and I realize it's when I figure out how to better myself, and I can share that with the world. Uh, everybody benefits. Humble the poet. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here on the shift. Our conversation with Humble the poet has inspired some reflection. I think inside our group, uh, even um, about being creative and and the show and and what our expectations have been. I think in the last six months of the last year. And um, it's kind of interesting when you, when you bring up the, the topic humble said there, he said, you know, I just wanted to get that into the conversation. So Maddie, where did, where did you take it? Um, well, I, I kind of realized something that, that really hit me a couple of weeks ago. Um, I, I was just in the shower one afternoon. Uh, and I like, so in my spare time, you know, I, I play in a band and, yeah, you know, we're not trying to be Bon Jovi and take over the world or anything, but it's something that we love to do collectively, me and my wife and our and our bandmate, uh, and, you know, to to create things and and to write songs and and make them. And 
you know, I pride myself on being able to to write, uh, you know, to to make an idea into a song and make it a real thing. Um, this year I have written exactly zero songs. Hmm. I have not one note, not one new note of songs. And like, you know, like 29, like last year was really creative. Like we made a record, um, and everything like that, but you know, we held it back because we didn't want to release it into the noise of this year. And perhaps maybe it was an unspoken sort of thing that we didn't want something that's so personal to us, our art to be either connected or associated or to be lost in what this current time is to be connected to this time. I haven't written since July. I thought about it actually just this weekend. I had some time where a couple of things were said that, that sort of hit me here and thought, you know, maybe it's time, maybe now, now it's time to go and start doing again. But isn't that perspective interesting when we look at everything that everyone's gone through, through COVID, and we did start the conversation kind of going backwards in time saying, you know, oh, I got all this spare time. Here we go. I'm going to do something amazing. I'm going to write a book. I mean, we talked about this with Sir Christopher Gilbert last night. And um, and yet, eight, nine months later, that's all faded away. Everyone's pissy. They're complaining. Everyone's back to where they were. So from kind of inspired to back to the doldrums of what it is, it, it seems like what we've lost out of all of it. It's kind of the inspiration to do something different, hey? Yeah, I mean, and it, you know, it could be your creativity is being directed in other ways, such as you know, like finding work or like yeah. like finding finding other ways to support yourself. Like you know, like like music is great and and art is great and everything like that. But in times such as these, you know, that stuff can take a back seat to you know. F- being able to afford rent and food and all that stuff and keeping yourself healthy. So, you know, but you do see, you know, all these artists putting out music, you know, of course the ideal place would be to be locked away in your studio working on your masterpiece. Oh, you've got all this time. I have no, I have nothing has happened. Nothing has poured out of me at all. Mm -hmm. I had zero Mm -hmm. desire, obviously to write, to make anything new. I mean, personally, all my energy has gone to this show because all the production, you know, as this thing has taken shape this year, a lot of that stuff has fallen to me. And because I knew I knew what I knew what it sounded like and I knew what I wanted to keep it sounding like and have new new things. Well, and and you got to be forgiving of that, too, though, right? Like you've got to be forgiving of the fact that you have been just just because you didn't do those things doesn't mean that you're not being creative. Um, so where does the forgiveness come in then, Matt? Like when you look at that, you know, what's the forgiveness that needs to be given uh, to yourself? I mean, for me, I mean, building the show has been has been an absolute beast on time, right? And so that that's been a thing. Um, but I mean, I, I've I think I've spent more time with my kids. I mean, there's all kinds of things where I can be forgiving of the fact that I haven't done a few things on the list because other very important things as well have come up. I mean, you're also recently married. I mean, you're inside your first year of matrimony, dude. Like, so where does the forgiveness come from or where does it be? Yeah. Where does the forgiveness start for yourself? Where do you have to kind of look at it and go, you know what? That's okay. I have been working. I have been creating, you know, at least the show and and staying at work and, and chasing those things. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of the, when I had the realization that, Oh, I haven't written anything personal this year i haven't written any any songs like that and then immediately after i was okay with that you know 
and like pr- like pr- you know prior years i'd placed a lot of personal importance on being able to create something to be to be able to show my bandmate and my wife hey look at this thing i made right, what, what do you right. guys think and then and them being like this is cool and making it into a full, like a song right. in, into a creation and i placed a lot of importance on that and you know just you know passing that along to my bandmates who also write like just be like hey like let's see how many songs we can come up with here let's let's do it let's let's write a mountain but uh yeah i i forget i've forgiven myself because of just these this is just what i'm doing right now this and Mm -hmm. this is what i have to do and what i choose to do you know i choose to be here i choose to make the decisions i make and i choose to you know answer the phones and talk and and make stuff and write stupid theme songs and you know all this all this other stuff. Yeah, and yeah, I was that's what I was going to say. You have written songs; they just happen to be seven seconds long. <laughs> they just happen to be really tiny. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. You know, it, it it brings up for me in in my writing the the piece about the difference between a decision and a choice. And if you if you look carefully at it, the difference between a decision or a choice. A decision has to be between two or more things. Right. Like you have to, you have to look at and compare and you have to um, compare them and say, okay, which one's best for me? Uh, and, and a choice doesn't need anything. It doesn't need an antithesis, right? Like you don't, a choice can be one thing. You can choose it or not choose it. Right. And there's a big difference in, in all of those pieces of the puzzle. And the best way it was always described to me is uh, if you're sitting down um, for, for dinner and someone said to you, steak or chicken. You know, well, hey, Matt, do you want steak or chicken for dinner? That would be the question. So humor me and answer that question, okay? Uh, chicken. Okay. So that's a decision, right? You look, You thought of steak and you went, okay, steak, hmm, okay, maybe chicken. Okay, I'll do chicken. Well, see, a choice, the answer might be spaghetti, right? The answer could be ribs. So if the question was, what do you want for dinner? Right. The answer. So you see what I'm saying? The difference between it. Right. So, I mean, you, you compare you one hinges on the other. You can't answer the question until you consider steak. Like you can't answer a decision until you've considered, well, is steak for me or is chicken for me? And so one hinges on the other being either bad or better. But a choice is one of those places where you just sort of create from. And so our, our days have been filled with, they're always filled with decisions and choices. And, you know, here we are still creating it. So it's interesting when you listen to the conversation from that perspective, what Humble said, what he shared, and uh, what you just shared with us, Matt. um, It's remarkable. But see, what I hear in what you're saying is I don't hear decisions. I don't hear comparison. And the two words that it boils down to are very simple. It's comparison versus contrast. And when you contrast where you are and where you want to be, that's just a choice. Right? I am here. I want to be there. As opposed to, you know, I want to go left or go right. I want to go up or go down. And uh, the way that I teach it is one is normal and one is extraordinary. And um, they all belong in our lives. But when we make choices, we serve ourselves. We serve our soul. We serve who we are. We serve the purpose of all the things that we have. And when you tell your story, Matt, um, I hear an awful lot of choice in that, which is cool. Not comparing, not saying which one's the lesser of the evils today. Um, And I just, I think I want to acknowledge your share, Matt. Thank you. I think that's pretty remarkable. Thank you. I mean, part of it makes me 
just incredibly sad, but you know, part of it also just is like, well, this is just, it is what it is and mm-hmm. it's all out of my hands. And you, but you're not hinging your, your identity anymore on writing a song today. Right. And the self-worth piece where it lands for me, where I learned that for myself was I'm good enough right now, right here, whether I wrote a song today or not, whether I wrote a poem today or whether I wrote down that thought about uh, mine was about racehorses. I'll share it with you one day. And, um, whether you did it or not, that's it. You're enough. You're good. Like humble said, you didn't die today and you're good. So I hope this, uh, uh, can be shared with everybody, you know, that, that you're good. All of the shift heads, right? You're good. You did it. You made it through the day. You're not defined by your day because here you are right now. You made it through the day. And it's an absolutely um, beautiful thing. It's the Shift Podcast. Welcome Welcome. to the world of weird things with Greg Fish. Uh, The world of weird things.com is where you can read Greg's articles and also catch up with his podcast too. How's it going, Greg? It's going great. How about yourself? I'm good. Thank you very much. Um, tiptoeing our way to Christmas, kind of getting excited a little bit, I think. Everyone's you know, kind of looking forward to the big day and, and you know, it's starting to feel a little bit more uh, more close for everybody. Um, how are things going for you? Are you getting excited at all or what's happening in your world? Well, you know, there's COVID, so um, I've, I've, I'm indoors, staying put, um, just uh, trying to make the best of it. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's very, very true. On your article today, um, treating people poorly, treating wait staff poorly. Where are we going today, Greg Fish? So we are going today to, well, hopefully first a dark place, then a lighter place. So, I'll, uh, which is usually a contrast with what I do, but um, let's let's start in the dark place. Okay. Um, so there was a recent study by UC Berkeley. Uh, they interviewed. Um, hundreds and hundreds of food workers asking them what is it like to actually you know work in a restaurant during the pandemic you know what's going on how's life been for them Um, and uh, they found a horror show something like 80 percent have said that their tips have went down Um, there were a lot of complaints about them wearing masks or wearing face shields or wearing gloves basically trying to protect themselves Uh, 40 percent said that sexual harassment went up um, and, uh, they are, you know, basically, um, they're not doing that well. And the people who are coming into the restaurants right now are basically kind of self-selecting themselves to be pretty mean and cruel to wait staff on average more than in usual times. And unfortunately, the restaurants can't do very much about it because they don't really have the financial leverage. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's an unfortunate, uh, it's an unfortunate picture, but again, if, if you think about who's going and eating out right now, the vast majority of people are, you know, who, who are going to take that chance, um, especially indoors, uh, they probably don't really care about the dangers of COVID or they don't want to pretend that it exists and mm-hmm. don't really like the fact that people don't want to participate in their fantasies. So um, they act out. So really that made me think, well, why are they doing that? What's actually going on in their heads that is making them act that way? To be clear, it doesn't include everybody. Because some, oh, I mean, no. there are all kinds of people that, um, that you know, go out and they, they dine and they, 
you know, try to follow all the rules as they're written and wash their hands and do the thing and, you know, and do the proper spacing and all the things that are, um, that are out there. So, you know, it's not everybody, but it's, it seems to be a very clear recurring pattern that uh, I'm going out to pick a fight tonight. I don't care if uh, you like it or not. So what are, what are some of the patterns that you found in all of this? Um, you know, I think your article says the psychology of terrible people. Yeah. And uh, where, where does it, where does it go? So here's where this goes. Um, when you, um, when you say I'm going to go out there and I'm going to pick a fight no matter what, the reality is you're not necessarily going out to pick a fight. It's that you don't really care if you're going to pick a fight to get your own way. Whereas the vast majority of people who, um, want to respect others' boundaries and want to respect civilized society, uh, don't want conflict. They don't want to yell at people. They don't want to start trouble. They don't want to get in trouble. They just want to go about their day. They just want to make um, every every interaction they have as nice as possible. So what happens is when people throw tantrums or they act out, it's because they have learned that they can get away with it and they can get what they want because others don't really want to deal with them. They just want to give them what they want so they stop the tantrum. It's almost like, you know, it's almost like the, the spoiled brat that learns that, you know, making life miserable enough for the parents means they get that cookie or they get right. to stay up later and so on and so forth. And, and some people just kind of grow into adults who do that. And then the question is, well, if they are the minority, how come they get away with it? And not just in restaurants, but, you know, all the way in, in politics. I mean, you look at some politicians right now and world leaders, and there's very little difference between them and a spoiled brat throwing tantrum. Yeah, so, and it, you know, it's interesting when you bring that up because it really does come to that place, right? Because there are some people that will always complain about their food to keep it on the topic of food. Um, and and I, I've heard people say it. Well, why are you complaining? Well, yeah, because if I, they'll give me a deal if I, if they uh, if I tell them my steak's cold or I'll eat yeah. half of this one. I'm really hungry. So I'm going to have a few bites of this one. Then I'm going to tell them it's not cooked right and they'll bring me another one so I can eat more. Right? Like there yep. are people who take full advantage of that um, from the get-go, like that is a regular tactic of getting a deal. Yeah, absolutely. And it's and it's terrible. And the question is, if they're the minority, why don't people stop them? And the reason has to do with something known as the bystander effect, where people are expecting either somebody else to take care of this or somebody in authority to show up and shut it down. And a lot of times it doesn't really happen because there's no like actual coordinated response to this so everyone is just kind of thinking well i'm just gonna wait this out i'm just gonna let them do this thing and maybe somebody will actually like give them their comeuppance and then they'll stop but because everyone thinks everyone else is going to do something nothing actually gets done so what that so what ends up happening is that these very people who we're talking about just get emboldened you know they're going to go to the restaurant and they're going to complain more they're going to um treat somebody terribly and get what they want out of them, and then they're going to go somewhere else and treat somebody else terribly again. And it's going to escalate from food at restaurants to how they run their companies and how they run entire countries. It's it's just this this cycle of terrible habits. And there is actually something to be said about the fact that when we say, oh, this person, he's just a terrible person, and he, you know, he complains about the food to get a deal, and he's mean 
to the wait staff and he treats his employees like crap and he yells at his kids, et cetera, et cetera. We, you know, it, that's not really an objective way to establish whether someone is necessarily a bad person or not. That's kind of our opinion. But interestingly enough, science does have a way to qualify someone as a, what we would call a terrible person. And there's a number of tests that measure what's known as the dark tetrad for very bad traits that people can have. Um, and those traits are narcissism, Machiavellianism, sadism, and, um, uh, uh, oh God, I'm blanking out on one. <laughs> well, well, sadism uh, is pretty well punctuated, I think, on that one, buddy. Yeah, so sadism, right? like, sadism is, very, is quite well punctuated, yes. Um, so, oh, oh, uh, psychopathy, sorry, antisocial oh, wow. behavior or lack of empathy. There it is. Mm -hmm. There it goes. Right. Um, so, and the sadism is especially prevalent because sometimes you have, like, if, if you have someone who's, who's not like looking at bad people and saying, well, I hope they get their comeuppance. That's, you know, that's normal. That's just part of how society functions. Bad people should get punished. Uh, bad people should, um, should have some sort of consequence for what they do. But when someone says, well, I'm going to be mean to someone, I'm going to be mean to my waiter because I like to watch him squirm because I have that power. Then you're dealing with a, an objectively bad person as would be defined by mental health manuals. So that's, but that's where they learn this. They learn this because everyone is hoping that somebody else deals with their tantrums. And we get, and now we've gotten into a situation where world leaders think that it's okay to throw tantrums to get what they want. And people who are going out to restaurants in a pandemic at a very difficult time for a lot of people. And they just pretend that they run the place and no one is there to stop them. And they can be mean to anyone they want to get anything they want. It's an objectively, it's an objectively bad, bad situation all around. So the first place I go in this, Greg Fish, is Yelp. I mean, Yelp is one of those things that really has done no good, I don't think, for anybody. The, the fact that no, you can learn media. about... Well, yeah, but I mean, Yelp, Yelp is like what was the center of yeah. it, right? Like for, for real, like you could go on social media and you could search, you know, all to your heart's content on Instagram and you might not find out like, you know, Billy Bob's Pizza, you know, had a customer that was pissed off. But if you go to Yelp, and uh, people will pile on because it's readily available right there, right? Like there are websites out there that you can literally, you know, poorly rate your doctor. You can poorly rate your teacher. You can go out and just literally spread gossip. And the only way to get off of it is to pay to get the, the insults and the defamation taken off, right? Like, so this has become a mentality that emboldens those people because they, they now have leverage of the, the permanent complaint, you know, on the internet. Yep, absolutely. So the so then that would probably prompt the question of well, what can we do to shut these people down? And the best way to shut these people down is to simply not let them get away with it. And I know that sounds like a really simple, easier said than done sort of deal, but it it kind of becomes our responsibility as a society to not assume that someone else is going to deal with a terrible person. And to tell them, be ready to tell someone who we're close to, hey, you are being a real jerk. 
Um, and obviously when you're talking about social media, when you're talking about Yelp, um, there has to be some sort of, um, there ha- it's very difficult to make those sites accountable. Um, and I honestly don't have a ready-made solution, but there has to be something, some sort of consequence where somebody is lying about something on the platform and it can be proved that it didn't happen. Um, and that person gets banned from the site. Can mm-hmm. they sign up for another account? Yeah, that's possible. But, um, and, 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 but at least they would have lost their account. At least they would have had to put in more effort. And every time they lie, they get, it gets progressively more and more difficult because they have to register another email address. They have to post another thing. Their reputation, they don't have the reputation to stay. So there have to be tools to filter out people who are lying to get an advantage. And there has to be that, that automatic response in us to shut down people who say, who act out and say you're you're being a jerk and that it, one of the thing, one of the places where this starts is you know uh, in in the family uh, when a family gets together and there's always you know well hopefully that's not the case with with some families yeah, but, drunk uh, uncle but there's bob, plenty man. of families yeah 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 uncle bob who keeps ranting and raving and gets madder and madder and madder tell uncle bob hey if you can't act like a civilized human being get out we we're tired of your we're tired of your crap we're done we don't we don't have to deal with this no one has to deal with you we choose to deal with you out of the goodness in our hearts and you're exploiting that so pack your crap and get out and there is is this notion sorry i'll let you continue one second save that thought on your mind um the there is this notion that was presented to me once where somebody uh, uh flipped a a racist comment on the radio and i didn't say anything i didn't i didn't step into it and i was told this and it stuck with me forever you know silence is endorsement and if we think of it from that perspective of that not saying anything you might as well endorse it sort of changes the way we look at drunk uncle bob when he does those things sorry as you were saying no you're absolutely right we are definitely our silence gives these people the license to do whatever they want to do we may not be we would not be good be saying, "Yeah, go Uncle Bob. Tell those, tell all those people how much you hate them." But we're not objecting to it. So he thinks, "Oh, I can go ahead and, and keep doing that." Um, and then when it comes to restaurants, when it comes to public places, um, I think it's important to start really thinking, like as a culture, do we want a place that tolerates people throwing tantrums? Do we tolerate places where terrible people go? Do we want places where someone's going to cause a scene? No, I want to eat. You know, I want to eat in peace. I want to go to a place where people are respectful. I want to go a place where I don't have to listen to confrontations, where I don't have to listen to complaints. Um, and getting, giving waitstaff, giving managers, giving anyone in a retail position the ability to shut down extremely rude and crude and sociopathic behavior will actually benefit all of us. Because if people know that they can't win by picking a fight, they're not going to pick a fight. And the rest of us get to enjoy the peace and quiet. You say it really well in the article where you say the bystander effect gets weaponized. Yeah, um, essentially, the people who are doing this, the jerks who are doing this, understand that we don't want a confrontation, and they use that against us. So they're not bound by the same rules that we are. 
Right. And then because they know that we don't want a confrontation, if we even, if we're, if we react with anything other than a forceful rejection of their actions, they just try to out tantrum us. They want to drag us down to their place and beat us with experience. So that's why you can't throw a tantrum back at them. And that's why you can't, um, you can't just, you know, try and get a handle on them as politely as you, as you think you can. You have to be, you have to be very assertive. It, it, there's, there's a very real, um, there, there's some communication that, that has to happen there that requires a lot of forward thinking. Mm-hmm. And then the other trick that they use is because we want to be civil and we want to respect people and we want to give people second chances, they weaponize that as well. And when they do get in trouble and when they do get their comeuppance and when they do get consequences, they will cry that they're victims. Uh, when in reality, n- no, there's just consequences to acting out in civilized society and you're getting them. If you don't want to get those consequences, then don't do the bad things. So it's like if someone says something racist and now all of a sudden they get shamed on the internet and lose their job, they're not being censored. It's not cancel culture coming after them. It's people don't want to deal with the racist because nowadays being a bigot is a huge liability. What if you get a client who is being, who's personally insulted by what this person said? You you can't, you, you're, you're losing money on that. What if you lose, um, what if you get terrible PR from people saying, well, can you believe this company employs people like that? How many other people voice those kinds of, um, those kinds of thoughts at the company? Who's running this business? And you lose prestige and you lose face and you lose followers and you have people complaining. Being a bad person in public is a liability. And that's why people are gonna, are, are gonna get consequences. And they can try and weasel out of it because, you know, unfortunately, there's plenty of, uh, plenty of equally bad people who will support them because they, they, they know they gotta stick together. And they know they have to weaponize the bystander effect. And they know they have to try and, and, and amp up playing victim. But we cannot bend to that. We can't give them that ability. If someone is stepping out of line of civilized society, we have to let them know that we're not going to tolerate it and we're not just going to give them what they want because they yell and scream for it. Yeah. Worldofweirdthings.com. Um, it, it's a good point. It actually it translates really well into so many things right now, just beyond even the servers. But that's where we're going to keep the conversation. 877-399-9898. Your thoughts on this and how to treat people properly by the life of the server. Worldofweirdthings.com. The articles, the podcast is there. Greg Fish. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. This is the Shift Podcast. Matt, how's your moon, Dal? Uh, it's it's good. <laughs> that was funny. Are you? Let's do. Are you okay? We're we're a high budget show. Are you okay with Christmas music? Uh, it depends if it's something that's off the beaten path and you don't hear a lot, like a lot of the stuff that I'm assembling for the shift Christmas shows are going to be pretty, uh, pretty awesome and pretty out there. Um, Mm. but if it's the same, same old, same old, and I, and I hate to throw this at Ryan O'Donnell, but Wham's last Christmas. Eh. Yeah. 
Like it's okay. And I know how much you love it. And I'm not I do. I'm not throwing shade at you. What kind of you are for liking it. Because music is subjective. But <laughs> I do hear it's it a lot. Suggestive. You do. It's You're subjective a, yeah. as long as it's good. I hear exactly. <laughs> I hear it a lot, even not at Christmas somehow somehow. That's yeah. weird. I have a cutoff. That's one of my favorite songs, and I do not listen to it past January first at all. Um but as for Christmas music on a whole, I would agree with Matt. I, you know, I like it in doses. The classics are great, but I don't love the same songs that hit the top charts or the top that everyone talks about every year because mm-hmm. no good new Christmas music comes out anymore. Have we run out of Christmas songs? I worry about that. I think. About well, that. I, I, um, I mean, I here, here's business research guy. There's a reason why mm-hmm. those songs go number one. And uh, the research, when we used to do music radio back in the day, the research was very, very clear, hands down, what the best songs were. And they are again and again and again. Are you okay with the same Christmas songs every year? It's not really a surprise, but certain songs are at the top of the list again. Oh, good Lord. I don't want a lot for Christmas. Uh, you might recognize that as Mariah Carey. Um, yeah, so I, I uh, there's a reason why it's so good, man. It's familiar. It's cozy. It's amazing. It's back when Mariah Carey was not quite so crazy. <laughs> it has a very positive reputation. It, I mm-hmm. mean, unless you hate the song, which is fair if you do, but it's a very positive fun christmas song and michael buble yeah yep pentatonics like there's a lot of people tried Mm. to take a run at all this and no one has had a chance um to do that released in 1984 uh was three weeks uh number one last holiday season fourth total week top 100 tying the most time at number one among holiday hits in 62 year history of that now coincidentally this happened on the same day that someone put together a supercut of the cast of schitt's creek singing all i want for christmas is you as well I don't want a lot for Christmas. There's just one thing I need. Well, I don't care about. But presents underneath the Christmas tree. I don't need to hang much stocking. There. On a fireplace. Santa Claus. Won't make me happy. With a toy on Christmas Day. Right. I like it. I just want you for my yeah. Yeah, I, I, I've got an idea. I'm just going to make the, the shift Christmas shows, all of that. It's just going to be music um, with random bits of us talking. Over the putting the making Christmas together. songs? It's going to be really, there's going to be a lot of space in between the words. And it'll, you know, it, it'll be it'll be awesome. It'll be avant-garde, but it'll be mm. unusual and it'll be festive. All right. Look forward to that. Oh, man. Uh, coming up here, I guess, on the shift Christmas. So we've just found out from Maddie. So uh, Mariah Carey, All I Want for Christmas is You. There's a reason why it's absolutely amazing and endearing. And there's another song that is incredibly endearing as well, but somehow doesn't ever make it to the radio. And after you hear Mariah Carey and then you hear Dominic the Donkey, you might be able to hear perhaps why some songs are just heard better than others. Hey! 
It's Dominic the donkey, jingity-jing, the Italian Christmas donkey, la, 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 la. See, like Dominic the Donkey is an incredibly special wow of a song. But can you it's groundbreaking? Like, right, like it's not. It's just not the same, man. Mm. So, I love that. Maybe we should use Dominic the Donkey as a Christmas cheeky bleep coming up. Oh, <laughs> oh my goodness! Uh, we are going to increase the uh, rotation on cheeky bleep. See what I did there. Um, <laughs> over the next, starting again tomorrow, as we get ourselves closer to Christmas. So if you have Christmas songs that are perfectly clean, like Dominic the donkey, and you would like them to get a little bit cheeky and dirty, all you have to do is, uh, send an email Shane at, uh, it's the shift.ca and the email will come on into the show and you can let us know what songs you think we should cheeky bleep out here on the show. Are you okay? Hmm. Hmm. Are you okay with digital masks? Ooh. So they're not real? They don't do anything? <laughs> no, those are virtual That's masks. The thing. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> um So yeah, to to your point, Matt, um you get to take it wherever you want to take it. It's are you okay? I'll tell you where I take it. I take it to those ones you see in the mall. That you could put on there, Matt is awesome. Those digital masks. That's where I take it. Ryan, what do you think? Okay, so I guess this, it is digital. I mean, like, yeah, you could have some fun with it. I mean, if it's virtual, though, it's not real. You know, it's a little cheeky. You can have some fun with it. But at the same time, it's not getting the job done. So I guess the intent behind the mask, you know, because if you're, what if it's like a Snapchat filter? You know, you're just out in public. And you feel guilty because you were out, you took a cool picture, but you're not wearing a mask. So then you Photoshop a mask on top. That's not okay. You shouldn't do that. All right. Disney World will be reportedly uh, stop enhancing the on-ride photos by pasting digital masks on masked park guests because they've been doing that. Um, <laughs> oh, no. So if you in a picture, like if you're on the log ride ah, with no mask on, they would put a mask on you for it. Let's hear the clip. When Walt Disney World theme parks reopened back in July, they did so with new COVID-19 health and safety protocols, including the requirement that guests wear face masks. To further enforce this rule, guests who were found not wearing their masks correctly on attractions did not receive their on-ride photo. Now, Disney has compromised on this somewhat, enhancing on-ride photos by placing digital face masks over maskless guests in on-ride photos. In a photo posted by Tony Townsend on the Facebook group Disney World Junkies, we see the first instance of this practice aboard Dinosaur. While everyone in the front row was complying, uh, a rider in the back was not, and you can see the slightly oversized digitized face mask uh, edited onto them. Wow. Uh, yeah. Okay, so they're going to shut it down. Um, Giz Disney was taking this YouTube cover of Be Our Guest from Beauty and the Beast quite seriously. Where? Ah, oh, mask, wear a mask, is this really much to ask? Tie some fabric round your face, oh, it's the simplest of tasks. At the gym, at the store, don't treat it like such a chore. No, these mandates aren't malicious, all your theories are fictitious. Stop the lies. That's quite possibly the best one ever. Yeah, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, no, so Disney says they're going to, uh, they, the enhancements were part of a test run. 
the enhancements also, I'm just guessing here, might have been part of, shh, don't tell anybody we're not enforcing any mask stuff at our park. If the pictures. Yeah, that's sketchy. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.